Hello and welcome to the Managing Uncertainty Podcast. This is Brian Strausser, Principal and Chief Executive here at BrightPath. Hello, this is Bray Wheeler, Senior Consultant here at BrightPath. And this is episode 169, and we're going to talk about what clients do wrong. Nothing, right? They don't do anything wrong, right? <laughs> I openly acknowledge that clients right. hire us for a reason. Yep. We... We specialize in one area, right? We describe ourselves as, you know, we work with the world's leading brands to strategically manage uncertainty and disruption. And in doing so, we put ourselves out there because we are absolute experts in business continuity, crisis management, and crisis communications. That's what we do. That's what we do. And one of the things that clients do wrong and I'm going to say this in an appropriate, humble manner, but I'm also going to be a little ruthless. <laughs> it is clients who underutilize and under leverage our expertise. Yes. And the underutilized part, I think, is yes. really about we're going to give you a great product. Whatever we've agreed to do, we're going to do it. And we're going to build it in a way that it fits with your organization's culture, the way your company works, the values of your company, the way you make decisions. That's our goal. That's our goal. And we enjoy a good intellectually driven back and forth on how to do that because we will openly admit we're not always right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But we know what we're talking about. And where where the under... I don't know if underutilizing is the right way to put it, but... This is the only thing I've ever done my entire life. And I I understand as an expert what we bring to the table. And we have seen clients make every possible mistake under the sun in these processes. It's one this the resiliency space is really a space that is incredibly simple mm -hmm. at the core but incredibly difficult and complex yes. and dynamic yes. to implement and to make work within a various organizations because every organization is different mm -hmm. culturally from yes. objective standpoint totally. from what your core operation and purpose of existing is and it's highly dependent on people mm -hmm. highly Highly dependent on people. You can have all the processes in the world, but if nobody reads them, nobody mm -hmm. understands them, you're not exercising so, them. So when I'm saying, and I know you get this, but when I'm yeah. saying I've seen clients make every mistake under the sun, I mean that I, I don't think there's a crisis situation that at the core I haven't come across. Um, there's definitely different ways of the crisis happening that I haven't had happen. But I've had every consequence of a disruption happen that I think you could ever have. Yeah. And I've seen clients do things right and wrong in about every way that you could think of. Um, and so when we talk to clients about these things, about implementation, about the things you need to prepare for in a crisis, and then we get into arguments that we don't know what we're talking about. And, and like here, like a perfect example of this happened this week. You know, we, we, were, um, we were working on a crisis process for a client. We built their crisis process and we have built some scenario specific Details. We built the all hazards approach for any crisis, and we built some specific scenarios around things like active shooter and you know regional natural disaster and whatever. And one of the scenarios we built for them was data breach, 
And I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of data breach plans we probably have done in the last decade. Oh, yeah. A ton. And we have a really good handle on what a company needs to do from a non-technical response yep. in a data breach. And uh, part of the part of the scenario-specific planning we did is we wrote communications messaging that you need to deploy in a crisis or yep. in, in this type of crisis. And the head of communications at this client came back after reviewing the draft plans and goes, I don't really know why we would need a holding statement in a data breach. Now, now mind you, the content that we put in here was probably 80% finished with the recognition and the active recognition of them reviewing this to and determine to what strategically they wanted to accomplish in right. the communication, how they wanted to modify and make sure that it fit with how they go about messaging and communicating right we don't propose to go 100 percent there yeah they, ha they have to make some decisions right but yeah they came back and was like but i give her credit because she followed that with i want learn me i some to the effect of learn me not great english but learn me <laughs> on what i might not be considering here. yeah which i so, give her enormous credit so for. educate me so we did so I, I think I replied to this, yep. and it was absolutely you need a holding statement in the event of a data incident, and here are the situations where we have seen this happen in real life, and um, I mean I, I've had this happen to me inside of a company, where and you know I laid out exactly kind of what had happened, and her response instantly was, oh, oh yeah I totally get that, yep, but just it wasn't able to conceive it. Yeah, I mean I think offline as we were talking before you had even responded and we we're sort of talking through kind of her response. And then her question was really like, yeah, you absolutely do. Holding statements are one of the, the easiest things to sort of check a, check a box on in, in the process because it, you know, we can go down a rabbit hole on this, you know, it, it buys you time, but there are certain incidents where holding statements are a must, you know, data breaches and active shooters and, all those things that are highly dynamic, highly sensitive, could be rapidly evolving. You need something to sort of position yourself. And a lot of times, you know, it, it it's a good example of people sort of challenging back on, no, we you know, we wouldn't do that, you know, but they're thinking of it in sort of a business context of mm -hmm. a rollout didn't go super effective. Well, we're not going to put a holding statement out. We'll just sort of wait until we kind of, manage through and correct what we wanted to and put some more stuff out. That's not what, when you're in a crisis or you're managing an incident, that's not what that is. You have, you have to get control and hold on to control of that narrative as long as possible. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a good solid example of that underutilization of expertise mm -hmm. and thinking, well, I'm a communications expert. Yes, you are. You absolutely are, and we defer to you in how you want to state the holding statement and draft the language and what content. Our expertise is telling you you have to have it. Not having it comes with serious consequences, cascading consequences. One of the other mistakes I see clients making, we talked about underutilizing using this example, but it's the it's the not leveraging your consultant. And I think the the place that we see this happen the most is and, and to be honest i did this on the other end of the relationship when i was in-house at a company 
and did. I had consultants. Oh, I did. I've learned my lesson now. Um, but it's it's not. You've hired an outside expert to do this. Yep. Chances are internally, you will not have the credibility on the topic that we have. You may know the company and the players, but you don't know crisis management and business continuity. The best way to leverage us when we're talking about an evaluation, a program update, you know, something you're rolling out. After action. An after action report is to put your expert forward and let them drive the conversation. That's Let a, them present. That's a great example. The work, because I think we've we've now come we've become a lot more direct about this in the last couple of weeks in our or the last couple of years rather, in some of our material that look our best fit for a client is a client that is willing to let us engage directly with their leaders to present our own work, because nobody can answer questions and challenges about the work that we do as well as we can. We've we've even gotten to the point where we've sort of contractually structured that we have in some cases. In some cases, because yeah. it to your to your point, and I think where we've seen clients really really struggle is when they try and walk in there and think that and they're trying to do the right thing. So there's a certain element of and sort of understanding and I can appreciate wanting to walk in there and be seen within the organization as the owner of the process and, you know, providing that, you know, gravitas around the program. But at the same time, you might truly be an expert in these spaces and might have a full understanding. Guess what? You're inside and like it or not, inside players there's always the internal kind of politics game the resource constraints all that all that stuff realistically plays a factor in that bringing in utilizing that outside expert to come in and have that conversation instant credibility to some extent but also allows you to defer and either use this as the good guys the bad guys the you know the messenger to proverbial kill, you know, in these situations, you know, that we're the people that can sort of raise the alarms without you having to lose credibility. Well, and and not only that, but having been in the room after you've left the room in other situations, if you're the one who has hired the expert and then you brought the expert forward to present their work and they present and they represent their work well, you come off as a better leader, a better use of resources, you come off as someone who is willing to bring in other points of view and outside expertise, and you have the confidence to put them forward. You try to do right by the organization. That's right. From the get-go, not trying to do right, not the perception of trying to do right by you. One of the other areas where we, and, and there's kind of a theme to this next one across a couple of major points we want to make, but one of the other areas where we see program leaders and clients not do well or struggle is, and we've talked about this numerous times on the podcast, is not aligning your program or the efforts you're undertaking with the strategic objectives of your organization. Like, Where is your company going strategically? What's the landscape? What are the objectives they're trying to reach? And where does your program empower that? And where does your program get in the way? 
And I think a, a good example of this is just an exercise we went through the last couple of days with one of our clients where, you know, I think we're all trying to figure out where the economy is going. Um, and there's some indicators of, you know, maybe a recession or a downturn, particularly in some particular fields. And so a lot of companies are proactively kind of pulling back on budget. And, you know, our, this particular client of ours, pretty smart group of folks said, hey, so if you were to think about doing things differently in the coming year, what are those things? And his whole point and his the point he was making in a part of that was, you know, we should be thinking about not just what we're doing, but what should we not be doing anymore? Yep. And we came in a conversation when we, you know, after a couple of days of thinking about it, we came back with, look, we can summarize the whole program in one pitch. And the way that we should think about the program going into a, what looks to be a challenging year economically is let's talk about what you have to do from a regulatory compliance standpoint, because this is a regulated company. Um, second, what are the things that you should keep doing because they're value added? The third section was, what are some things you should keep doing because they're value added, but they need to be done differently, which I think we've structured as just simplify. Yep. And a lot of what we did was, how do we simplify this, but you should keep doing these things. And then we had a list of things that we said, you shouldn't do this anymore. Yeah, It's not that they're not important, but if we're really thinking about how do we approach this differently, and the company's talking about, we're gonna narrow our focus, well then let's narrow our focus. And we laid out the things that we thought weren't, they either weren't value added or they were owned by somebody else in the organization. And he, you know, we were doing them because we didn't want them to fall down, but they're not, they're truly owned by somebody else. So why is this business unit continuing to do that work? So, you know, we've agreed to cut that out. And some of those things on, you know, on that last list are things that are easily stood up or easily done if the need arises. So you don't have to necessarily budget for putting out a, an awareness campaign on something that hasn't happened or isn't likely to happen, you know, in the next year. Well, if it, if it pops up, guess what? You can, you can spend the money or take the time to put those things into place. But yeah, it's aligning to those strategic objectives. And I think a great sort of example of this from kind of a resiliency standpoint is if you're an organization that has these capabilities and you are a just-in-time supply chain dependent organization and you roll into a COVID year, guess what? you probably have a process to start thinking through and actively working it, working the problem of uh, disruption in the just-in-time supply chain that a mm -hmm. lot of people felt. Mm -hmm. If you have not invested in these things or you've allowed them to be aligned differently within the organization or not aligned to your organization as a just-in-time you know, organization, you probably aren't going to have great success. And I think we saw that with a lot of companies. And the reason why the supply chain is struggling as much as it is, is in some respects, you know, was there alignment to some of those strategic objectives? Those strategic objectives, and yes, they, 
they're not going to directly align to resiliency components of your organization. But guess what? They all come with risks. Mm-hmm. That's why they're there. They're aspirational. They are pushing the boundaries of the organization. That comes with risk. There's danger in everything that you're doing, just as there is great opportunity. So making sure that your programs are aligned with those objectives and understanding those objectives and the right players and teams are thinking about these resiliency components, maybe even pieces of the organization you haven't had to bring in before but are now central to the newest objective, guess what? You're way ahead of the game if you go, oh, Mm -hmm. Team X is now responsible for that objective and we've never talked to them before about this because they've never had a reason to engage. Let's get them in right now. I think similar to that, you you brought up alignment with key players in the organization. So one of the gaps we see a lot is the resiliency leader, the crisis management leader, the security leader, is what's the span of their relationships in the organization? And um, I have thought about this a lot. We've talked about this uh, in a lot of different ways on this podcast about building the the right relationships in the organization. Um, Gartner has a great paper out Um, earlier this year called the leadership vision for 2022, the top three strategic priorities for security and risk management leaders. And they have, they had a beautiful chart in this and theirs was about the CISO. It was about the chief information security officer. That's really what this white paper was about. But what caught my eye that I think applies to the resiliency orgs, to resiliency leaders, crisis management, BC, crisis comps, is that there are, what we would think of as table stakes that you have to do, right? So they, you know, if I think about a crisis management leader, they have to be connected to the core teams responsible for crisis response. So that's probably facilities and security, HR, IT, communications, marketing, legal. Okay. Then there's what I would say are the value connections where you what's that next ring of folks well now you get into i don't know procurement finance like start to start to think about that next group of folks the ceo the chief hr officer you're getting above the operating level you're getting into functional leaders the executive the c-suite you've built those relationships and then what gartner says is but what really differentiates you are the relationships beyond that and the relationships beyond that are with your business unit leaders. It's with the board, particularly the committee that is responsible for for continuity and operational risk. So probably your audit committee or a, a risk committee. And it's those other C-suite members that you don't normally interact with. That those are the differentiators. That the most effective CISOs in Gartner's, to use Gartner's example, are those that have built that broader span. And I would translate the same thing to being a security leader, to being a resilience leader. Yep. The most effective ones are connected to everybody. If the least engaged C-suite member knows who you are, knows what you do, and knows how to engage the process, that's a really resilient organization. And But a lot of resilient leader, resiliency leaders, as we both know, don't do any of those things. No. And it goes back to, I think, a, a little bit of, you know, what we've talked about in this and I think the last podcast too a little bit is they don't they don't want to bother people. They don't want to take up people's time. They don't want to 
I don't I want get this it. to be noise. I don't want it to be. These folks are busy. These folks will value what you do if you make yourself important. Correct. If you bring substantive conversation and, to that relationship. And and being open like you are <laughs> the least engaged C-suite member. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot of connection here with you. We recognize that. But here, here's why we think that there is underlying value. And here's where we think the connection becomes strongest is if we get into situations with X or Y or Z in whatever capacity, even if it's unlikely, we think it's important. I'm, I'm reminded of a, oh, sorry. No, no, I was just going to say, and, and they'll, to your point, I think they'll be able to see it for what it is, especially when you mm-hmm. walk in humble and honest around the connection they go, yeah. yeah, you're right. There's not a whole lot of connection, but I know I see what you're doing here. And I'm, I appreciate the fact that you came in and, you know, we have this conversation once or twice a year. I'm, I'm reminded of a incident we were both involved in about a decade ago, uh, in our last big company job where there was an active shooter scare that led to a lockdown and SWAT teams clearing buildings and turned out to be a yep. false alarm. And the, the building that this happened in contained a number of support teams that the corporate security function didn't have a lot of interaction with. We had a lot of interaction with um, the uh, store planning, planning and design folks, architects and stuff because we built locations and you know there's a clear connection in security design. But otherwise, the teams over there weren't ones that had normal day-to-day intersection with corporate security. And one of the things that we learned in the after action discussions with their leaders about, you know, and talking to people who were directly impacted by this, um, they didn't have a good idea of a lot of the things that we were doing as an organization on security. And so they felt even less safe after this incident because they didn't have that background. They were kind of forgotten about a little bit because they were across the street in a different location and et cetera. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a great example of even with those teams that you have less interaction with, they're sort of, everybody's taking everyone for granted in those situations. Mm-hmm. You're taking them for granted because, hey, we're, we're checking all the boxes that we check for every location. We, we're pumping the same information out to everybody. Great. But if they're not regularly seeing what you're doing, if they're not regularly understanding or sort of tangibly touching, you know, the outputs and the value that's being provided, whether it's security or resiliency or whatever the case is, information security, they're they're inherently not going to champion or be as effective as you need them to be in these different situations, particularly in phishing campaigns, active assailing campaigns, you know, even fires or evacuations, things like that, where they may not know where to go because they're they're sort of being not taken advantage of, but just sort of being left left out there. But they're also probably not as engaged either. Mm-hmm. Part of the part of their culture is being one step removed from core functions of the organization. And I think we we see we see, I think part of that, part of where I think we see this too, um, where there's this confusion doesn't just happen because of the lack of relationships, but the confusion happens because you've not done a very good job of establishing 
clear definitions for the things that we're talking about. Yes. And when I say clear definitions, for the love of all that is holy, it's got to be clear. And it's got to be written in non-bullshit language. What is business continuity? What is crisis management? What is disaster recovery? And I don't care if you use different terms. I don't care if you call it event management. I don't care if you call it technology continuity. I don't care if you call it resiliency. I don't care. Pick something and define it in a way that the most entry-level person in your organization can understand what in the world it means. And it is consistent across the organization. That's right. It is not the business continuity team, business continuity team's definition of disaster recovery, which the disaster recovery team has their own definition. It's one organizational definition for all those things. And really, I think where not only that challenges is, you know, making sure that it's available to everyone to sort of see and read and under try and understand themselves. But then it falls back on those programs to champion each other's components of the resiliency process and say, look, what you're talking about, marketing team, is really falls within business continuity. And there's inherent value in what you're putting there. And we should engage those teams. But right now, we're talking about managing a crisis or managing an incident. They're different. And they're different. We're talking about X. You're talking about Y. There's value. But... We have to pause that, talk about this, and we can address, you know, why later. It those pieces are the ownership of managing those definitions and driving that cultural awareness and driving those needs within the organization really fall on the resiliency teams that are involved. You have to be able to define and own those things and steer people and understand that they don't know what they don't know. They're not the experts in these spaces. These are, these are niche spaces. They just are. And so the average person in the organization isn't going to have full understanding and full expertise in these spaces, but you should have it be as accessible as possible so that, to your point, Brian, entry-level person walks in they kind of get it or they have a familiarity of what's what so that when you get into conversations or you get into situations, there's, there's clarity there to move forward. Even if it's not clean or, you know, sort of clunky free, it, you're able to still move forward and people can follow along with what you're talking about. It's the worst when you get into conversations with people and, you know, sort of, eyes glaze over because, well, they're down the business continuity rabbit hole and I have no idea what they're talking about. Or why doesn't my BC plan address how I manage an incident? Or how the organization manages an incident? Well, because they're different things. Well, as we say this, I, I do want to point out, it's okay if your company thinks of business continuity as including crisis management. That's fine. Yeah. I, I We have clients who do the same. How you divide these things up doesn't matter to us, but have a clear set of terms and definitions that you're using and use them consistently across the organization. So important. I think that the the last like area of opportunity I want to talk about before we wrap this one up is um, you will have parts of your organization that have frequent issues 
or that you may have frequent issues with. They don't play along well with others or mm. they're the source of most of your challenges or they don't cooperate or what have you. Go solve that problem. Don't yeah. avoid it. Go solve it. You probably have a governance process. You might have a steering committee. Uh, you might have crisis management team meetings. The best disinfectant to solve these issues is sunlight. Yep. So just talk about it. Just ha- have the, I guess the way I would put it is, as my boss used to tell me, have the courage to have the hard conversation and figure it out. Well, and I think it's part of what, you know, it it sort of speaks to one of, you know, our organizational values too, that I think can be broadly applied. And I I would argue should be applied in any organization is be empathetically direct. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to confront those things and have the hard conversations with the understanding of, yeah, look, I understand the need or I understand the context in which this is being played out or created or has been formed or has existed or whatever the case is. But that's that's not the challenge we, we're facing right now. So how do we address the challenge mm-hmm. together mm-hmm. and confront this? Because we can't – it's not working how how it should work or – there's clear gaps in, that expose us to cascading consequences when we get into something else. There's secondary and tertiary things that will inevitably pop up in our response because either we're not talking or things aren't aligned or we're talking differently about something. We have to be able to sort of challenge each other in the right way to make sure that there's that culture of resiliency is universal. And everybody's sort of championing those aspects for each other. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to have the hard conversation. Don't. You you have to do it. Otherwise, your resiliency and you know this space probably isn't right for you. When I uh, when I started Bright Path in 2014, we didn't have an office, and it was just me. And I w- was using a co working space in downtown Minneapolis at the time, which was called Coco. It's now known as the Fueled Collective. They changed their name. But uh, they had the former trading floor at the Grain Exchange in downtown Minneapolis. So it was a really cool, like, two-and-a-half-story tall space. And then, you know, they had different tables and stuff. And I remember they had a, a vice board set up one day, I don't know, six or seven months into this. And you could put a post-it note up there with advice. And I found this fascinating because there were so many different people doing different things there. And so I'm kind of reading through it. And there was one that I took a photo of and I still have. And it was sooner or later, you have to be direct. Yep. And I was like, yeah, that, and that's kind of what we're saying here is you just can't be afraid to have that hard conversation. You can't be afraid to be direct with these teams and leaders that, you're having the constant conflict or that can't play well with what you're putting together and building. Well, I think the, the other sort of consequence of those things not happening and really consequence to, to some of these things is it, it arises in the places that you don't want it to necessarily play out, whether that's in front of your leadership team, whether that's in, within an audit or a certification or, you know, bubbling up to the board or in public, you don't want those things. You don't want those dynamics within the organization to be part of the response 
story and narrative to a situation. Those things are already going to organically happen as a result of the situation defined by the details and the nuances of the situation. You don't want to have pre-existing, essentially pre-existing conditions within the organization arising and and leading to either the situation or from the get-go complicating the incident or the response. That's it for this edition of the Managing Uncertainty Podcast. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Be well.